Eanes is proud to present the WHS Healthy Shab Speaker Series. This week, Adi Levenstein from EatingRecoveryCenter.com shares Donut Worry, Be Happy, Nutrition and Diet for Your Life. Hi everyone, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Adi, I'm one of the dietitians over at Eating Recovery Center. Have you guys, do you guys have any idea, I've heard of that center at all? So we treat, um, we can kind of, based on your questions, talk this is more a nutrition focus, and there's a little bit about kind of the link to eating disorders at the end, um, but I'm happy to answer any questions. We treat uh, partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient levels of care, but we also do free assessments um, for anybody in the community and give referrals for the community for different levels of care, and um, all of our clinicians, assessment clinicians, are master's level clinicians, and happy to answer any questions. So um, just so you know, we're a resource, um, and we're located up right behind North Austin Medical Center by the domain. And so, yeah, so I've been with ERC for about two years now. Beforehand, I worked in sports nutrition over at Auburn. Um, and so I have some background with athletics and now eating disorders. Um, really love kind of merging the two, and uh, there's definitely a need for that overlap. Uh, super passionate about kind of people's relationship with food, and that's why I'm here today. So to start with, since we're, it's like a school setting kind of deal, kind of before we kind of jump, dive in, I like to get an idea of what kind of things come to mind when you guys think about food. Um, simple word, but could have some extra meanings behind it. So positive, negative, associations that come to mind. Energy. Family. Holidays. Connection. I, in my line of work, see a lot of it on social media, especially with my kiddos that I work with, right? Um, so bring up, are there negative, positive connotations? What kind of things? Kind of want to get into, what is a diet that's kind of, I feel like over the last, let's say decade or decade and a half or so, it's kind of rushed from like things nobody talks about to probably the front line of every magazine, social media, ads all over. Um, and so if you guys had to define diet, what? What would that word mean? What you eat? Awesome. Anybody else have a, something to add? From Merriam-Webster, the first kind of definition that comes to mind, or that is listed, <laughs> is food and drink that's regularly provided or consumed or our habitual nourishment. Uh, diet is a noun, right? It is what we eat. Um, but in what we kind of call, in this last, especially last few years, but kind of over time recently in what we call our diet culture, it's turned more into, um, a regimen of eating and drinking sparingly to reduce one's weight, kind of something that we do to alter what our body looks like. Um, and which that can kind of lead to some complications with our relationship with, relationship with food and how, how, we yeah, how we relate to it. So we're going to play a guess diet game. So what title would go with this picture for diets? Atkins diet. Anyone else have another? This one is kind of one that kind of comes back every 10 years with, or so with a new name. South Beach, so ideal protein is very low carb. Um, also, keto would fall under this, right? Um, what what is its claim to fame, or what what is a tout doing? Like, why why do people do it? Lose weight. Um, carbohydrates are really important in fueling our brain, our body, our muscles, um, getting our red blood cells uh, the energy they need, and so it is one that's very a short-term thing that people can stick to, but not something that usually lasts long-term, um, making, making it a hard lifestyle, I guess, to obtain. Um, okay, what about this one? Caveman diet, and what's another word that kind of, the paleo, 
Yeah, and what is what are kind of the rules around paleo? No grains, no dairy, no grains. Nothing processed, kind of what cavemen used to eat, right? Um, again, I'm all for eating whole foods, but first of all, there's a lot of there's fossil evidence that cavemen actually did use grinding tools to grind grains and things, so it's not even based in science and that. But also, cavemen lived to be like on average in the, the 30s, right? And don't know about you guys, that's not what I'm striving for. So um, there's just not a lot of scientific kind of backing to this kind of way of eating. Um, what about this one? Gluten-free. Gluten All right. Who knows what gluten is? Awesome. You guys know a lot more than a lot of people that are gluten-free and tell me they're gluten-free because it's bad for you, but don't really know what it is. Um, so it's a protein that's found in grains, right? Um, and again, kind of meant for a weight loss kind of purpose. In reality, gluten is not dangerous for bodies that can tolerate gluten, right? So unless you're gluten intolerant or have celiac disease, that is an autoimmune disease that breaks down your intestines, gluten is not something that causes harm. Um, it, again, works in the short term, kind of like the other things with reducing the amount of foods that people tend to eat more of. And the next one. Cleanses, detoxes, all of that kind of stuff. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on, on the cleanse, juice, detox kind of deal? What's up? It's not, a balanced diet. not a balanced diet. That's right. Um, what's kind of missing if you're doing only juices? Fiber. Protein. Protein. Fats. <laughs> um, any kind of digestive, like digesting things, it kind of goes right through you, right? Um, the other thing is we are all born with a liver and kidneys whose job is to detox or take out the things of our body that we don't need. Um, so I tell people when they do juice cleanses, it's kind of making some really expensive pee. And also very miserable to not eat that for that many length of time. Okay, and this one I couldn't find a picture that didn't give it away in the picture, so. Whole 30. Anybody know anybody that's tried the whole 30? Yeah. What happens on day... Well, if they make it through the 30 days, what happens on day 31? Go back to it, and then they're usually at a certain point say, well, I'm going to start Whole30 again, like, next month or whatever, right? It's kind of the cycle of, um, and again, touts similar to paleo of, like, eating, you know, only whole foods, nothing processed, um, very regimented times a day that you can eat. What about this one? Anderman fasting. Have you guys heard a lot about that one? Kind of buzzing around. Yeah, what are our thoughts? To fast, right? And it creates kind of, like you were saying, like I want to have this social time and eat breakfast with my husband, or I tell the kiddos that I work with, like what if your friend's birthday party is during the window that you decide is your fasting period? You're going to tell them, sorry, I can't come because I'm fasting at this moment. So it really gets in the way. Um, and it also makes it really challenging to give the body what it needs when you're not feeling it. Yes? Yes, exactly. Um, the issue with a lot of these diets, too, is there's some, like, preliminary studies done on rats, right, that show that XYZ effect has happened. Um, and then preliminary studies done in humans that maybe follow them for, like, a few weeks and say, like, in those few weeks, this result came out of it. But we also don't necessarily measure the psychological impact of what those few weeks have done. And then we also don't ever really follow up with those people two years down the road, three years down the road, four years down the road, and kind of are at that point 
Um, so yeah, you guys all make very good points. And then this last one, vegetarian. Um, and this saying is like nobody vegetarian. There is definitely a way to, um, I guess, in a balanced way to be a vegetarian. But in our population, when we see eating disorders, a lot of times it's kind of a stepping stone of like this is a socially acceptable way for me to restrict my food because no one's going to tell me that I have to eat meat if I'm like ethically a vegetarian. But we also kind of do kind of backtrack with that of like when did the vegetarianism start? A lot of times it kind of coincides when there's something else stressful going on in their lives. And so I just want to more be cognizant of not necessarily like a bad thing. And it just does make you need to be a little more um, aware of what you're intaking to make sure that you're getting the nutrients you need. Um, because it can be deficient in what are the main protein um, and what? Um, vitamin Bs can be found a lot in, yes, the B12s, you're right. And then zinc and iron and things like uh, that. Okay. You guys are really awesome at this. I will say that a lot uh, <laughs> more on top of your fad diet knowledge than um, a lot of people I talk to. So uh, these are some how to how to's for identifying fad diets, um, promising false promises, like losing this many pounds in this short period of time, um, removing a lot of food groups from the diet because we know that can run into some nutrient deficiencies, um, and claiming that this certain thing that you can buy from us is going to change your world and make a magical right solution. Um, there's no magic pill, and if there was, someone would have discovered it, and we wouldn't be talking about this. Um, and yeah, also think, saying that using this program, diet, whatever, these um, products will fix all of your life's problems, because that's pretty lofty. Um, so I talk about the dieting cycle, uh, something that I feel like a lot of people in our culture are pretty familiar with or know someone that is familiar with it. Um, so say, let's pick a diet. We're going to start keto on Monday. And so what happens Friday, Saturday, Sunday before you start your keto diet? What are you going to do? Binge. So I'm going to eat all the things that I'm never going to ever, ever eat again because I'm starting keto and this is going to be forever. So I'm going to eat all the cookies and burgers and ice cream and fries and all the things. Um, that's what we call the last supper, last supper mentality. Um, and then Monday you're starting the diet and you're on it. And the first few weeks usually feels pretty good, right? I have more energy. I'm prepping. I've all like thinking about it. And I get to like have all my meal plans ahead of time and I have everything prepped in the fridge. It's really nice. Um, and then there's a birthday party that comes up or a wedding or your kid's birthday um, or your aunt's baby shower or whatever it might be. And you know, I'll just, I'll just te cheat a little bit. I'm just going to have that cookie or that donut and whatever. And usually that little cheat is a little cheat because you haven't had these foods that you really like in a really long time. Um, and then you're like, okay, no, but this time I'm really going to do it. I'm going to stick to it, to stick to my guns. That didn't feel good. That was a cheat and that's not going to happen again. So there's increased resolve. And then you're doing the thing, and maybe it's a couple days or a couple weeks, depending on the person, but you kind of reach a plateau of, like, maybe my energy levels aren't feeling that great. I actually, like, haven't been going out to eat with my friends as much because they're going to these restaurants that don't have the foods that I want, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that leads to some frustration and some cravings. And then um, usually at some point there will be eating, the cheating, right, again, that happens, and that also leads to some self-loathing and failure, a lot of self-blame, like, I didn't have the willpower. Usually there's some sort of negative consequence of like, oh, I don't feel really great in my body anymore, or I'm feeling lethargic, or I'm a failure, all of these things. Um, that usually leads to a resolve, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to start the 
intermittent fasting on Monday. And so then what happens? Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Binging. Eating all the foods that you're eating at all the times, right? And eating all the foods that you're not going to be able to eat later because this time it's really going to stick. And then we enter the cycle all over again. Um, and this has become really normalized in our society. Um, and this not normal eating behavior, right? Of like, I kind of go through these phases where I eat nothing that I want and all the things that I want and never really feeling that satisfied balance in between. Um, and this is a lot of times what people have a really hard time breaking from, especially when it's really exhausting to go out in public and that's what everything's everybody's ever talking about is like, I started this diet or I got this many steps or this is how many whatever and um, it's really hard even if you're kind of doing your own work to get away from that diet talk. And I don't think I've gone to a restaurant in the last, I don't know, five years without hearing someone say like, oh, I shouldn't order this off the menu or I can't order this off the menu because I you know, went to spin class this morning or things like that, right? Um, so I have a feeling you guys kind of know a lot of these based on what you've been saying already, but um, the truth about diets is that they really don't work. Um, there's a lot of studies out there. There's a lot of money in, in the diet world, right? Um, the dieting business, the dieting industry is a 60, I think the last figure I saw was $68 billion industry. Um, and that's a lot of money that goes into telling us that there is a better solution. Um, the thing that is crazy to me is that I can't think of any other industry in the world that when the product doesn't work, it's the consumer's fault that it doesn't work and not the product's fault, right? They say, like, you didn't try it hard enough, you didn't stick to it, you didn't whatever, here, try my XYZ product that comes after that. Um, whereas, like, if I were to do a puzzle at home and there were three pieces missing in the box and I finished the puzzle except for those three pieces, I would probably email the company and say, hey, you sent me a, like, produce the faulty product, they wouldn't say, oh, you just didn't try hard enough to finish that puzzle, right? Um, and so it's this diet into this, yeah, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry that's kind of based on us saying that we didn't do well enough, we need to try something different. Um, so they don't work. There's not a single study out there that shows that for the majority of its participants, weight stayed off in the long term, more than two years. Um, they set you up for binging behavior. Like you said, it's this last supper mentality of like, I'm going to... I'm going to have this restrictive period of my life or my life will be restrictive and I won't have these, so I'm going to binge in this moment because I really like those foods. Um, teach you to be out of touch with your hunger cues. Um, usually not nutritionally adequate, adequate even dangerous, right? Um, especially when you're not getting all the nutrients and they're cutting out those big food groups. So for example, a lot of people, and I'm not a proponent of like everyone needs to have dairy at every meal by any means, but there are some people that if they were to cut out dairy from their intake, that is their primary source of protein and calcium and vitamin D. And so making these like overarching claims of like nobody should eat dairy is also not taking into account like different people's different dietary patterns, right? And so um, they can kind of put you at a risk for, for some issues with that. Um, they don't teach you how to eat in the long run. You got mentioned already, you guys are like, these things work in the first few weeks or months or sometimes for people a couple years even. But generally speaking, they're not the sustainable things. Like it's not a life that you can live long term. Um, they're usually based off of punishing yourself and not based on self-love. And um, there's kind of a lot of controversy around, you know, the, the self-love, body movement, body positivity. Um, but if you think of anything else in our life, we take care of the things that we love. We don't take care of the things that we hate. And so coming from an approach of like, I want to treat my body well because I care about it versus I'm going to do these things because I hate my body is a very different kind of approach. And it kind of gives more empowerment to say like, I'm choosing to do this because I care about it. 
Um, they encourage you to think of things that it's good versus bad and setting up that very black and white thinking and rigid thinking. Um, leads you to put your life on hold. I've heard a lot of people say like, I can't go to that family reunion because I can't have them seeing me like this. When I lose the X amount of weight, then I'll go see them. Um, or I can't even, I can't go to this gym class that I really like going to because I don't feel comfortable people seeing me in this weight. And it kind of leads you to put things on pause when life is happening and it's going. Um, and it, that doesn't really, that's not a way to kind of fully live life. Um, and they can be harmful both physically and mentally. So a lot of psychological and physical consequences uh, when it comes to dieting. Um, we already mentioned some of them, but you guys know anybody that's dieting and kind of see the hangry mood irritation uh, disturbances in mood kind of deals? Yeah, that happens um, a lot. And also increased anxiety, depression kind of symptoms too. Um, increased obsessiveness about food and weight and the body in general. Um, a lot more feelings of pressure, poor self-image. Um, it's kind of I like the more we obsess about food in our body, the less good we feel about what we're eating, what our body looks like. Uh, difficulty concentrating, making decisions, thinking, kind of irrational. Um, Isolation, I can't go to this birthday party, I can't eat at this breakfast at this time, I can't um, go grab Froyo with my kids because I'm fasting right now. Um, and then feelings of guilt, shame, etc. And then as far as the physical, um, it does lower your metabolism. So someone over here talked about kind of just eat when you're hungry, right? Hunger is a survival mechanism, right? Our body, our brain's number one goal is to keep us alive. And a hunger cue is to tell us this is one thing I need to stay alive. Um, and so the metabolism lowers because our body says, I'm not getting the energy I need, so I'm not going to use as much energy right now. The hydration piece, um, it can be true, and I think that's one of those like diet culture -y things of like, oh, you're not really hungry, just drink water and you'll be fine. Sometimes drinking water, and that actually, when we'll talk a little bit at the end about kind of when it, the red flags become like, oh, this might be going into a dangerous, more eating disorder type of direction, but um, water loading is an eating disorder behavior, a disordered eating behavior of I'm going to fill myself up with water so I don't eat. And so not saying that at the other extreme, like there's uh, definitely people that need to be drinking more water and like they're eating when they're really uh, dehydrated. And so a lot of it is like learning to get in touch with your internal cues. We'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like, but um, I think there's a balance of like definitely a lot of people are dehydrated and need to be drinking more water. And sometimes people use fluids as a way to feel um, falsely full, when in reality that's not giving us the energy that we need at that time. And then we will talk about the emotional board eating um, in a little bit. Thank you for that. Um, other issues that come up with dieting is kind of GI issues that come up with, um, like when you're not eating consistently, your GI tract kind of gets confused and there's a lot of, especially if you're kind of cutting out certain nutrients, maybe not getting, like you're doing the juice cleanse and you're not getting fiber and other things that you need, then Maybe the other end of things don't look like they normally would. And lack of energy, trouble sleeping. Um, if you're not getting enough energy, it's hard for your body to do the things it needs to do while you're sleeping too. Body is signaled to store more fat because again, our body's number one goal is to survive. And if we know, body doesn't know that it's 2020 and I have, you know, 
a modern market down the street that I can go pick up food. It thinks that, hey, I'm not getting food and I don't know when the next time I'm gonna get food because we might as well be in hunter-gatherer times where maybe the next meal doesn't come until a week from now. So I'm gonna store fat to make sure I have energy until the next time I eat. And so it is this like primal survival thing of if I'm not getting the food I need when I need it, prolonged. This isn't like, oh, I'm hungry now and I ate in an hour from now. Um, but in a long-term type of thing, your body goes in, when it's going into starvation mode, it is going to store more energy to survive in the longer term. Um, reduces the amount of muscle tissue, including vital organs. I tell my patients all the time that your heart is a muscle, and it's kind of important to be able to fuel that, right? Um, one of those critical things. Um, lower body temperature, people get cold more easily. Um, decreased hormone production, immune system functioning. This is one of those especially with athletes, kind of common misconception that, oh, it's like normal for female athletes to not have their period. Um, a loss of a menstrual cycle is a very serious medical concern um, with hormones not being in place, bones not getting enough energy that they need to um, form and putting higher risk for injury and other complications. So um, hormones are a big one, and especially with a lot how our culture tends to really demonize fats, and fats are the basis of our like structurally of our hormones. And so when we don't have enough fats, it's hard to also um, to create the hormones that help with mood regulation and all the other things that they do. Um, brittle hair, nails, and dry skin, and then decreased bone density. Um, at our level of care, we see a lot of patients that come in at risk for osteoporosis already in their teenage years. Um, now when they're at osteopenia, they are, that is reversible. And so with some weight restoration and nutritional rehabilitation, that can be reversed. But we have kiddos that are below 17 with irreversible bone damage, osteoporosis. So that's a big one too. All right. There's a lot about like here's what we shouldn't do and that what we're doing does. This stuff doesn't make sense to like be um, cutting out foods or having certain food rules. But then there's also this like really big question of like what does make sense to do? Um, and there's a lot of information out there. Um, <coughs> Honestly, it's exhausting. Um, I get lots of texts and calls from friends and coworkers and families and things about, you know, like, oh, have you heard about this? I, the most recent one I heard about this weekend was that people do carnivore, the carnivore diet now, where they only eat animal products. And I'm like, that just sounds horrible, but like, why? <laughs> why? Um, so anyway, my big philosophy is I think we've kind of made it something that used to be very simple, very complicated. And I'm not and going from complicated back to simple is also complicated. Um, so where do we get our energy? Food. The other part of that whole brain wants to, us to survive kind of thing is why we like food. We are supposed to get dopamine release when we eat food. Because if we didn't have a reward for eating food, we wouldn't live. Um, and that kind of gets into, I know there's like the whole thing about, you know, sugar addiction and such. I think that's a really, really challenging line to walk because, yes, there is dopamine release when we eat sugar, but that's because sugar is what helps keep us alive. And so there's like, it's not like a drug like cocaine that you can just say, I don't need this in my life. And this causes this amazing release of like, you know, happy, happy hormones and endorphins. But um, Food is something we need and sugar is something we need. And at the end of the day, food breaks down into sugar in our body. So even if we're not eating table sugar, there is sugar in our body because it needs to be there. Okay, so the main macronutrients, carbs, proteins, fats. This is our umbrella for all where we get our energy. Let's do a super quick review of what, what do all these do? So why, what do carbs do for us? They have us energy up our brain 
runs off of glucose, which is the most basic form of sugar or carbohydrate. What else? Most of our fiber comes in carbohydrate form, right? Or all of our fiber, I should say. Uh, fruits, veggies, whole grains, fiber. Um, B vitamins other than like B12 come from our fruits and veggies and grains. So the prebiotics, yeah, for the probiotics, absolutely. So part of it, the fiber helps with, yeah, making sure our gut is healthy with the, the microbiome. That's a good point. And that's a really huge exploding field right now, too, in this area. Um, another one that if people don't realize is carbohydrates help you stay hydrated. Um, the carbohydrate molecule links with water molecules in your body. And so the reason the fad diets often target carbohydrates is because when you remove those, you're not retaining the water that you need in your body. So you're actually losing a lot of water weight, um, which again, water is really important in keeping, I don't know, like muscles. Yes. Oh, muscles working properly. So again, like the heart, a big muscle that needs to have water. All of our other muscles that we use to like not be injured and things. Um, our body is anywhere between 60-90% water, so there is a lot of things in our body that would be affected when our water intake or our water retention goes down. And so in the short term, yes, low, taking out carbohydrates helps with weight loss, but it's dehydration weight loss, not weight, weight loss. So it becomes very tricky yeah, for your body to retain what it needs when you don't have carbohydrates. Okay, protein. Oh, I guess, what are some sources of good sources of carbohydrates? Sources of carbohydrates. Words are hard today. Sources of carbohydrates. What, what are sources of carbohydrates? And we can kind of get into the, the categorization more. But we said fruits and veggies, fried and rice. What else? Potatoes. Yep. Other grains. Oatmeal, grits. Um, legumes. They have both. So that works. Yep. Um, Corn, peas, beans, which uh, legumes, and honey, sugar, so pastries and things like that. I think we covered them all. Well, I think a conversation that's really missed in nutrition conversations these days is the importance of having appropriate energy intake, and that is like number one. Um, and that's especially with you know my population that I treat with. Like that's our number one goal: is your food is your medicine. You need to having be having an appropriate energy intake. A lot of times the word calorie is super triggering for people that are kind of teetering or like, you know, even amongst conversation, especially with teenagers, like calories are these little evil things that nobody really knows why we're scared of them. But I tell them all the time, you know, what is a calorie? It's the amount of, it's energy, right? It's the amount of energy it takes to raise one liter of water by uh, one degree Celsius. That's, that is a calorie. I think when you like drive back to like, that is what it is, it doesn't sound as scary as this word calorie. Um, what the conversation we have is, is it really is important to like normalize and um, normalize all the foods. So not necessarily a good or a bad. And I think there's a more or less appropriate choices at any time, right? Like with my athletes that I used to work with, eating a burger and fries right before you're about to like play a basketball game probably wouldn't feel super great, right? It like has more fat in it. It would make you feel a little more lethargic. But eating a burger and fries after your game, when you're out with your friends and it's a social social thing and you need to refuel your body from that would be a great time to have, right, burger and fries. And so that's not saying that that is your, should be your protein and grain every single time you eat, but being able to include all the foods without having this judgment of like, oh, I'm I feel guilty. I don't, I shouldn't be eating that. And so when it comes to grains, like whole grain versus white, right, there are, first of all, White grains a lot of times are fortified with the nutrients that are lost in the processing. <laughs> Especially with the younger kiddos that are super picky, like 
if they eat white pasta, that's great. And if they're not going to eat whole grain pasta and they're eating white pasta, that's still giving them, you know, you know, the energy that they need, the carbohydrates, the helping them stay hydrated that we talked about, the B vitamins that are there. Um, and if they're getting fruits and vegetables, then they're getting fiber from that. And that's kind of the main difference between white and wheat. I'm all for, like, some people love wheat bread because it's more grainy and more textured and that's awesome, and so eat whole grain bread. But if your preference is white bread, then you're eating, again, a balance of all these other intake, um, food items, then you're going to end up getting your nutrients that you need. And so I like to kind of take more of a step back of, like, not micromanaging, like, which grain am I having on the table at every time? Because what I really like to talk to my kids about sometimes is, like, if you're going to an Italian restaurant with your family and they have homemade white pasta, and they have whole grain pasta available, but it's the kind that you could get at the store, like Barilla, that's really the experience there is getting that homemade, like fresh, or if you're going to Italy, right, you know, like you're really there for the experience, being able to experience life and not have those food rules be getting in the way. Um, and then also having a combination, like some days we have a dish, we have brown rice today and that's awesome. And then another day maybe I have, I have this like Mexican rice dish and that's made with white rice and that's also fine. Is that helpful? Um, it's kind of, yeah, it's bringing that black and white into the gray, which is, you know, this stuff is not really sexy to market, which is not why, why it's not really talked about a lot. It's not like, is this right or wrong or inside or outside the box? Um, okay, how about proteins? What foods have protein in them? Fish, meats, what was that? Meats, beans, eggs, nuts. Mm-hmm. Broccoli actually is a, is a carb. Very like trace amounts. It's trace. It's not 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 a source of protein. It's very trace amounts. Yeah. Every every carbohydrate also has like grains also have a few grams of carbs, but it's nothing that's like would be added up into enough. There are very few foods that have just one. I think fruits and vegetables only have carbohydrates in them, but like milk has carbs, proteins, and fat in it. Um, uh, peanuts, nuts have fats and proteins in them. Uh, same with or. Beans and legumes have protein and carbs in them. So all of these are combination, but we're kind of talking about what would be like if I'm going to look at a plate and make sure I've got all my macronutrients covered, um, that kind of deal. So, and it does get more complicated, especially with vegetarianism. Like if you do a legume and a grain together, then that creates a complete protein and there's all of that kind of like a bean. That's why beans and rice is such a common, you know, dish long term is it's, it makes a complete protein. Um, so... Rule of thumb for proteins, if it was an animal, comes from an animal, and then beans, nuts, seeds, types of legumes. So what do protein do for us? Building and repairing muscle. Help boost our immune system. Um, those are kind of the main two. The muscle thing, I mean, if you think about back to biology class, there's like proteins that are integrated into our cell structures, right? And so it's cell structure and integrity. Um, they're really involved in almost all processes in our body. Um, and why, are, yeah, so, so there's proteins. That's usually kind of the one that gets left on the side of diet culture. Like no one's, no one's touching protein. No one's saying like you shouldn't be having protein for the most part. There was something that I saw that someone did like the wheat diet and then you only, or you're only supposed to have carbohydrates and no protein. And again, sure. Uh, <laughs> okay, what about fats? What are sources of fat? <laughs> Avocado is a great one. Very millennial-esque avocado toast. What else? Butter, olive oil, or other oils. Yeah, avocado oil, not, or seed oil, sesame oil. Olives. 
um, the meats that have fats in them, right? You guys have heard of omega-3s that help reduce inflammation, so like salmon and things like that, flax seeds, um, and nuts, nuts and seeds have fats in them. Why are fats important? Hormones, yes, that's great. What else? This is one that like society tells us this is bad, stay away from fat, and we don't talk about all the important things. Um, the first thing that I like to tell, well, sometimes with my patients when fat is a very triggering word, I use the word lipid because that's a scientific term for it. But dietary fats does not equal, like we kind of have this like diet, our diet culture tells us like if you eat fat, your fat is going to transfer into fat on your body, and that is not the case. Dietary fats have a lot of like creating hormones, like nutrient absorption. So vitamins, there's fat-soluble vitamins that if you don't have fat in your body or intake, that you can't absorb them, and those are A, D, E, and K, um, which help with vision, calcium absorption into your bones, uh, and redu reducing inflammation and blood clotting, all important things in our body that fat helps with. Our brain is 70% fat by dry weight, um, so a lot of functions of the brain need fat in them. Um, and again, in our biology, phospholipid bilayer, the lipid part, that's like creating our cell structures. Um, it helps with protecting our vital organs. So that's why a lot of times you guys see with the kiddos that are going through puberty, a lot of times fat kind of accumulates first around where most of your vital organs are and then we will redistribute. But that is like the structure changes and stuff happening in the body. Um, and helps with mood regulation with the hormones and all of that. So it helps with also Heat insulation, right? Keeps make sure we're not freezing all the time. Okay. Also, there's water in what we eat, vitamins, minerals, all that's important stuff. But again, I kind of like to look at it from a macro level and all these other things when the other stuff is balanced tend to fall into place with some exceptions, but we can, like, that's easier to fine tune when we've got the whole picture in balance. Um, okay, if you take nothing away, from this presentation at all, except for one thing, I would want that one thing to be this. And this is something I wish I would have learned in school or before I went to school for nutrition even, like as a kid. So where I feel like bombarded with messages from a very young age of needing to control or dictate what our body does or how it functions, that we can't trust our bodies to know what it needs. Um, and this is an external representation of what's going inside. It's not like there's tick marks inside with a hunger scale, but being able to get back in touch with what our bodies feel and how hungry and full that we are. Um, some go from zero to 10, some from one to 10, but essentially zero is this, I, I'm starving, right? It's like the point of I'm so hungry that I'm not hungry anymore, nothing sounds good. A lot of that, the hangry, right? The like irritable, don't ask me questions, don't talk to me, headaches, dizziness, nausea, all of that stuff that is like not a comfortable feeling. Yeah, everyone's been there at some point. 10 is the other extreme, so the overfull. What kind of things happen when you are feeling super stuffed? Sleepy. Yeah, a lot of the same things, right? Nausea, irritable, don't talk to me. And also, what tends to happen when you get to that side of the scale? I'm so full that I never want to eat again. So a lot more likely to make our way right back to the side, right? Because even when you start getting hunger cues, maybe you're like, yeah, I'm not really trying to get to where I was before. So we're just, we're going to wait it out. Um, now, when you are at this side of the scale, what's a lot more likely to happen if you do start eating once you're like so, so, so hungry? Overeating, right? So to the other side. And so we've got what I call the football of terribleness. 
because you go in this little circle and there's little tick marks in the middle and it's a really, really frustrating cycle to break just like the diet cycle of I'm restricting or I'm binging and neither of those extremes is a fun place to be. Um, and so where do you guys think an ideal world would be a good hunger level to start eating? A three or four is what we say. Why do you not want to get to a one or two or a zero? Yep, it's harder to kind of mediate along the way, right? So um, when we talk about listening to our body, it's our brain and our body working together. And when it's all primal physiological, like I'm hungry, the brain kind of takes a step back because I need to get the food that I need and I need it now. So it's a lot more likely to not be able to tune in and say I'm getting full to the appropriate amount. Um, Okay, and where would you say a good kind of satiated point would be to be like, okay, I'm good, we can stop eating now? Seven, yep. Um, we say seven, full and satisfied. Um, other skills that I have have eight being as more like seven, like satiated and eight full. So seven and eight are kind of where we want to hang out. Um, again, it's not a perfect science. It's not a tick mark saying, oh, I got there. Um, but it's a good like more ballpark to think of like not being in this black and white, but bringing it more into that gray area. Um, why not hang out between like a five and four and six all day? What would happen if you were doing that? You're not quite full, you're not quite hungry. What would that look like in eating terms? Snacking, grazing, which happens sometimes and it's definitely not the end of the world, but we, what I teach my clients is the point of eating is to fuel your life, not for your life to revolve around food. And so for you to be able to say, I'm satiated, I can go on to focus on my next task, task, do my work, meet with this person, do my homework, whatever it is that is happening versus being like thinking about food at all times. Like, oh, I want, that wasn't quite enough, but I'm not really hungry enough for a meal and all that kind of, that brain space really gets caught up in the food versus our life. No, it's not bad to eat multiple times, and that's actually this next slide, so it's a perfect segue. Um, I was saying that, like, the all the time, at all points in time feeling like you're grabbing, so it's like every, like, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, like, I'm still not satisfied, but I'm not full, or I'm not, yeah, I'm not full, but I'm not hungry enough to eat a full meal, and so it's this, like, incessant grazing versus, like, more structured meals and snacks, which is what the next part is, so I like to compare our energy levels and our metabolism to like a campfire that you're building. Um, and you want to keep a campfire to contain level. You don't want it to be like a forest fire, but you also don't want it to be like a tiny little flicker. Um, what I hear, hear a lot of people, especially people kind of in the more working uh, realms are like, eat during the day, I don't get hungry. I just eat like all my calories at night when I get home for dinner. The equivalent of that is like waking up with a time. You've got a little fire going overnight. You're fasting really, right? You're not eating while you're sleeping. And so you've got some energy, but not enough to like sustain a day. And so it's barely holding on all day. You come in at the end of the night with a huge truckload of wood. How much of that wood can the fire utilize? Not a whole lot, right? Like it'll use some of it, but it can't use it all. Whereas if you wake up and you give it a couple logs, you wait a couple hours and it goes down a little and you give it a couple sticks, and then a couple logs. So eating spread out throughout the day. And we, my rule of thumb is every three to four hours to eat something. That doesn't mean a meal every three to four hours, but maybe you have breakfast and a snack and lunch and a snack and dinner. That's kind of how our metabolism works, is kind of keeping your blood sugar levels, leaving your, leaving your metabolism at kind of a level space. And it'll fluctuate a little bit, but kind of more in a smaller range. Um, and not going more than like five hours really without eating. Um, because that kind of puts you at 
more of that risk of you know the binge restrict type of cycle. So it's it's true that your body has a certain amount of energy needs, and beyond those energy needs, that's how you know excessive weight can hap happens is when you consistently are eating beyond your body's needs. I don't know that there's a number for everybody across the board, but I'm assuming everybody has a number, an energy level that their body needs at that certain time. Um, but the, the caveat to that is that you can't go to a dietitian who can know exactly for sure for your body what that number is. And that's where all of this work of like tuning in and like listening and thinking like, how much am I hungry for right now? It's not your body can't handle the food, but like, yeah, if you went and probably ate three full pizzas, your body's not gonna be able to metabolize all of that or use all that energy and that will result in fat creation. Um, but again, it has to be this like consistent, I'm eating beyond, outside of what my body needs consistently over and over again. Does that answer your question? And protein, the same thing. There is a threshold where like at a certain point we're not creating more muscle or you know, turning over proteins in our body. There is a certain point where that will be turned into something else. So either fat or like we get rid of some of it. So I like to, my dad is six foot three, four-ish. And obviously I'm not. Um, I had a lot of parent-teacher conferences that the next day teachers are like, so what happened to you? Um, but I like to use that as an example of like my dad and I are not very gonna have the same energy needs. Even if I go exercise for hours in a day and he sits, like maybe that will get it closer, but our energy needs are gonna be very different. And so when there's dietary recommendations that come down from you know the government and all of that, it's an average, but like that average doesn't apply to him or to me really, because neither of us is anywhere close to average. Um, and so knowing this why having like a set diet or somebody else telling you like this is the things that you need to eat and how much you need to eat at all times doesn't account for all those changes individually. And that also varies from day to day. So there are days that we are more active than other days. There are days that we are more tired than other days. There are days that for females, especially when we're on our cycle, that also changes our energy metabolic needs. And um, depending on how much lean mass we have, muscle mass requires more energy. It um, has just a higher energetic need. Um, elevation can change our appetite and hydration. There's so many factors that go into it. And so being able to turn inward to listen to what we need versus following a plan externally is where the work really needs to be done. And, um, of course, like as dietitians and doctors, we learn in school about you know energy needs equations, and those give us a good ballpark estimate. But those are also done on you know like from calorimetry on a dead person at some point, right? That like we figured out how much energy that body needed, but that body is thankfully none of our bodies, and so it doesn't apply directly to what we're doing. Any other questions? That was great. Those are great questions. Thank you. All right. Um, so then it comes to the question of what is normal eating, right? We get all these like messages and honestly our culture I feel like has like made normal eating nearly impossible. Like you kind of have to live under a rock to not hear anything that society tells us. And there's a lot of things that I feel like we don't even realize are not normal because how normalized they are. So talking about, um, I'm trying to think of examples. Well, things like I need to earn my food, right? As human beings, we were born and we have the unconditional permission to eat because we are human beings and we need to eat to survive. Um, but saying that I can't have that because I didn't go to my workout class this morning or I can or I'm going to my workout so I can have this like, yes, of course, our energy needs change when we're more or less active, but you are always have permission to eat brunch. The question is, what does your body want in that moment? Um, and I really like 
is by a dietitian named Ellen Satter. She does a lot of work with especially uh, kids, but she's just really great. Um, and so this says normal eating, going to the table hungry, and eating until you are satisfied. Normal eating is being able to give some thought to your food selection so you get nutritious food, but not being so wary and restrictive that you miss enjoyable food. Normal eating is three meals a day or four or five. Normal eating is trusting your body to make up for your mistakes in eating. Normal eating takes up some of your time and attention, but keeps its place as only one important area in your life. In short, normal eating is flexible. It varies in response to your hunger, your schedule, your proximity to food, and your feelings. And so that kind of gets into your question about bored eating and emotional eating and what do we do with that. Um, part of normal eating is sometimes eating because we are sad or stressed. And sometimes it's because we're really happy and we're at a birthday party. And I'm not necessarily hungry for a full piece of cake, but that cake tastes really good. And I'm here sharing this moment with my friends. Where it becomes problematic is when eating is our only coping mechanism for our emotions, right? And I'm so fortunate to work with a lot of therapists in my office and learn so much from them of like, what other skills can we use to deal with this? And so, yes, of course, eating is going to make us feel better because there's that dopamine release that happens to, so that we eat to keep us alive. And so within some, you know, a certain kind of bubble, it makes total sense that having a piece of chocolate when I'm feeling kind of meh at night and want to kind of have a pick-me-up, sure. But when it gets to the point of like, I'm doing that, that is the only way that I can feel better is eating things outside of my hunger cues, then it becomes, becomes more of something to talk about of like what's really going on for that. And so bored eating can be normal sometimes. But again, if like we just keep going to the, the pantry and we're not really like, maybe we're just being avoidant of doing homework. At a certain point, we're going to have to do our homework, so let's do the homework. And it's not going to feel very good to overeat because I'm bored. Because at the end of the day, that's not energy that my body really needs. And so there's definitely a range of like, there is definitely some gray area of leeway of like, this isn't a bad thing, but it becomes problematic when there's no other way for us to cope with. I'm trying to be avoidant or I'm trying to soothe myself or I'm trying to deal with something that's making me really anxious or stressed or I'm feeling kind of down today. Um, it also gets really hard, especially for our kiddos. They usually don't get enough sleep. Um, that food gives us energy, but it's not the energy our body really needs. Our body needs some sleep too. And so it's a lot harder to regulate our hunger cues when we're not getting enough sleep um, and things like that. Does that answer your emotional eating word question? Um, have you guys heard of the concept of intuitive eating? No. Okay. So a lot of people think it's mindful eating, which part of intuitive eating is mindful eating. Um, it's this system created by, well, coined by these two dietitians named Ellen, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Raish. And I'm not, I'm not like here to, you know, I don't get paid to promote their book or whatever. It just really is kind of the most basic principles that I feel like are super helpful um, across the board to getting back to normal eating. Um, and it has these 10 principles that are rejecting the diet mentality, honoring your hunger and fullness, um, or honoring your hunger, challenging the food police. So that talks a lot about like different voices of things in your head that are saying like you should have this or you shouldn't have this or this means this about you. Um, making peace with food, and that's that kind of normalization piece of I'm not like making so many judgments about the food. Like is this the food that I want right now is a great question, but not saying I shouldn't have this because X, Y, and Z, and kind of becoming from a more curiosity perspective than a judgmental space. Uh, respecting your fullness. And notice that honoring your hunger comes before respecting your fullness, because I think in our culture, hunger can be this like, in this ambiguous space of like, 
should I, like, is this something I really need to be doing? Um, and again, if we think of it as like a survival mechanism, this like cue that your body's giving you a message, when you have to go to the bathroom, even if you went to the bathroom 20 minutes ago, you're not like, oh, I just went 20 minutes ago. I shouldn't really need to go again, so I'm not going to go. Like, you go to the bathroom, right, if you're around it. And that's kind of how it works with eating. Like, oh, I just ate 20 minutes ago. Maybe I underate, and so that hunger cue means I'm actually hungry, right? And once we've done this work of like, am I emotionally hungry? Am I physically hungry? All of that, right? Um, but being able to honor your hunger because it's there for a reason. And then respecting your fullness comes like down the line with the work too. Discovering the satisfaction factor. And that's what I love to talk with my clients about, you know, if you go out to a restaurant, you can order something and the intent behind it can be very different. So if you're really in the mood for something like juicy and warm and um, salty, a burger and fries would usually satisfy that, right? But if you're like, I shouldn't have a burger and fries, I'm going to get a salad. I'm still going to make sure that it's got protein and blah, 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 blah. And macronutrient-wise, it's all the same. Is that salad going to satisfy the satisfaction factor you're looking for from the burger and fries? No, it's not because it's cold and it's crunchy. It's got a different texture and temperature and flavor and all of those things. And the opposite is true, right? If you're really wanting something crunchy and light and that has, you know, the different textures of a salad and it's cooler because maybe it's a hot Austin summer day and it's, you're just like eating something warm sounds awful, then having that burger is also not going to satisfy. So our body's really smart in being able to say like these are things I need and there's so many reasons that we eat what we eat, right? There's like color and flavor and texture and temperature and all these factors like to it. So that satisfaction piece is also really important. Um, there's a lot of people that, you know, if, if my rule is chocolate is bad and I shouldn't have chocolate, but I really want chocolate, maybe I'll just have some fruit or I'll have some jelly because that's sweet or I'll have, I don't know, the dried, whatever else that's sweet, but that's not really going to satisfy that need for the chocolate. And usually what ends up happening is you eat all these other things that instead of the chocolate, and usually the chocolate ends up being eaten at the end anyway. And at that point, you feel like crap. And it's not that you feel like crap because you had the chocolate, but it's because you had all these things that you weren't hungry for. And so you ended up eating more than feels comfortable. Had you just had that piece of chocolate, that kind of whole ordeal could have been avoided, right? And so being able to um, honor that, that, sati that satisfaction piece also probably has a reason that it's there. Um, honoring your feelings without using food is one of the concepts of this. And so that goes back to your question about the boredom and the emotional eating, right? So again, saying that emotional eating is a normal part of eating and we need to be able to cope with our emotions, not only with using food. And there's a lot of other skills out there to be like, what do you need right now? Do I need to go on a walk? Do I need to call a friend? Do I need to um, do some deep breathing or mindfulness skills? Do I need to um, journal, right? There's so many things that we can do um, that's not food related. Um, respecting your body is number eight. And so that talks about the genetics of our body and that our cultural thin ideal is not necessarily what our body's supposed to be at. And so being able to respect your body and feed it in a way that it is the way that it needs to be fed without necessarily having the expectation that I'm going to look like that model on the cover of that magazine that also probably doesn't look like that because she was photoshopped, right? Um, and then it talks about exercise, feeling the difference. We taught there's a concept in intuitive eating that's, that's called joyful movement. And so doing things, moving your body in a way that feels good, not because you hate it and want to change it, but because it feels good and it makes you feel better about yourself. And so if someone really, really hates running, why are we making them run all the time when they could go maybe yoga is their thing or kickboxing so they can feel stronger and feeling doing movement that feels good because it feels good and not because I'm trying to change my body. And then honoring your health. 
And so that's the part of, they call it gentle nutrition. And that's the part where it really gets into, you know, the carbs and proteins and fats and fiber in a way, but notice that that is the last thing that it talks about because there's all of this stuff that goes into, when we think about nutrition, oh, well, there's just, you know, X, Y, Z equals Q um, versus there's all of this work that needs to be done to be able to kind of get to a place of, and here are the things that, to make sure that I'm getting my balanced nutrition. Okay. So listening to your body offers feeling of self-empowerment, leads to trusting your body and its signals, supports maintenance of a peaceful relationship with food, helps you get in touch with your body, uh, thoughts and feelings, and provides freedom from dieting and disordered eating behaviors. Before I know it's uh, 1 o'clock. Um, if you want, we can check the answers, but I do want to give you guys some tidbit on like when the disordered eating kind of tips into more red flags for eating disorders or something we should be concerned about. One, true or false sugar is bad for you false. Um, diet fats can be good for you. True. You shouldn't eat after 8 p.m. False. There is not a all the time. If you're going to sleep over at 11 p.m. and your phone's on 20%, does that mean you're not going to charge it because it's 11? No, you're going to want to have it when you're with your friends. And so there's not like a clock. I mean, we have a biological clock. But if you're going to be up until 1 o'clock in the morning, you should probably eat at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock because you're still going to be up doing things, right? Um, dieting slows your metabolism. True. White foods should never be eaten, like pastas and breads and things. False. And fasting and eating very low calories are effective ways to lose weight. False. Long term, I should say. <laughs> okay. Um, so these are some questions that can bring up... Uh, some questions are like, I think, spend a lot of time thinking about my body and thinking about what food I'm intaking, and I find ways, let's, I'll put them up, spend, uh, plan my day around meals and exercise to manage my food, ah, avoid social events so I don't have to eat or eat certain foods. Um, I often find myself eating food until I'm uncomfortably full. Often spend time worrying about my body shape and always look for a new diet. I'm always on a diet or trying to lose weight. Um, and sometimes after I eat, I feel guilty and want to get rid of the food. Now, some of these things, again, are normalized in our culture. So if one of these answers is yes, it's not like red flag. But just being able to kind of shift the conversation from judgment around food to curiosity and like, well, why, why are we not eating the, carbs on, the pasta on the plate or the rice on the plate or whatever? Like, what's scary about it? And then kind of talking about it from more of a, a balanced right, perspective. Um, eating disorders are super sneaky and complex, um, and I also think that our current culture really um, breeds eating disorders and makes it very easy to hide in our current culture of, like, you think about the memes that I've seen recently of, like, oh, for breakfast I had, you know, one egg, a couple egg whites and lunch I had a salad and dinner I had chicken and broccoli and then I had, you know, three pizzas and 16 chicken nuggets and two pints of ice cream. And yeah, it's funny, and that's what our culture says, and it's not funny because that's an eating disorder, right? That's binging and restricting heavily, um, but we're super normalized. Those are super normalized in our culture, and so things to look for um, at home and at sports and at school and things like that, um, if you're noticing that they're super, like, and again, not any one of these things means they have an eating disorder, but also there's interventions that can be done before it gets to the point of an eating disorder because it can be a pretty slippery slope when they're kind of predisposed to that if they're more of an anxious temperament and things like that. Um, super perfection ones, the very competitive ones, all of that kind of this more um, tendency for black and white thinking that can with common life events transition into some dangerous water. Picking up food or like moving your food around on the plate, other types of little cutting up food really small, taking tiny bites, 
um, they're avoiding things with food around them. So family meals or events at school that have food or birthday parties, um, possible reductions in performance that sometimes happens um, where we see like grade slipping um, or if they're in sports, kind of performance slipping, um, practicing on off days or doing more reps all the time more than is needed. That can exercise can be a component of like the, the compensatory behavior in eating disorders. Um, blacking out, being lightheaded, and fainting during activities. And then if they had very significant shifts in short periods of time of weight, either up or down, that's concerning. Um, and then lab abnormalities at the doctor's office. And physical changes, like noticing a lot of hair falling out or super dry skin, being cold all the time, um, are all kind of things to look for. And again, not any one of these things is like, wow, but also it's unfortunate because we don't really learn how to be aware of them. And even, you know, um, I, being a medical professional, and I have another one in the audience here, um, we don't get a lot of education on how to look out for these in our, um, in our programs either. And so just being kind of vigilant about things that are happening and conversations that are had. Any questions about that or things that would be helpful to expand on? I'm also here after to answer any questions. Um, so my little last one is, when it comes to food, don't worry and be happy. Um, Gordo's is fantastic if you haven't been there yet. Um, and just a, a little bit about ERC, uh, Eating Recovery Center, where I don't know why I have this light gray. That's not very helpful. Um, mission to provide the very best care to patients, families, and providers of care, treatment, and recovery from eating disorders and related conditions. Um, we have a fully integrated vertical model. So in Austin, we don't have residential facility, but we have intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization program. And then we have access to our facilities in multiple locations across the country for residential if that is needed. Um, we do a full treatment approach. So every patient that comes has a dietitian and therapist assigned to them, psychiatrist, medical doctor, nurse, um, and they do group therapy as well as individual therapy, family therapy. And so it's this really comprehensive team approach to make sure we're kind of tackling all sides of the eating disorder. Um, and so if you do have any follow-up questions about anything we talked about today, that is all I've got for you. I'm happy to answer any questions, and I really appreciate your guys' time. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested in the archived video recording of this session and any corresponding handouts or resources, please visit the WHS Healthy Shaps website at healthyshaps.weebly.com.